Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Interrupting, question-dodging, and personal attacks dominated the second Republican presidential primary debate held in Simi Valley last night. Honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. Seven candidates took the stage at Reagan Presidential Library, hoping to emerge as the alternative to former President Trump, who decided to skip it and is miles ahead in the race. We look at what the debate reveals about the direction of the Republican Party, Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. With the Iowa caucuses just a few months away and a looming fundraising reporting deadline, seven candidates vying to be the Republican presidential nominee sparred in a debate in Simi Valley last night in hopes of becoming part of a conversation that's been dominated by Donald Trump with statements like this. Here's Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record where they added $7.8 trillion to the debt. That set the stage for the inflation that we have now. I can tell you this, as governor of Florida, we cut taxes, we ran surpluses. We recap the debate and get your reactions with Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. Hey, Scott. Hey, Mina. Also with us is Philip M. Bailey, national political correspondent at USA Today. Glad to have you, Philip. Hey, how are you all? Uh, Doing okay. Would love to get your top line reaction, Philip, to last night's debate. What stood out to you most? 95 seconds. That's how much or how long Donald Trump was even mentioned in this debate and how briefly he was mentioned. Uh, It was more about uh, the other candidates sort of whining that he wasn't there, but nothing about his indictments, nothing about January 6th, nothing about his uh, very controversial comments about General Milley, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, In many ways, these seven candidates still let President Trump off the hook. At least they mentioned him in this debate, but they certainly uh, didn't prosecute him in the way that anyone in any kind of campaign in any party would prosecute the front runner. And why do you think that is? And just to give listeners context, the suggestion that Mark Milley should be executed after he gave a an interview to a major media entity. I mean, that's a very shocking thing that in 
I think in normal times would have disqualified a candidate. But uh, why do you think it is that they did not go after things like that, Philip? Right. I think that, you know, look, President Trump is by far the top dog in this primary. He leads by 40 point points in most polls. And I think what it is is that a lot of these candidates are still not afraid necessarily of Donald Trump, former President Trump himself, but they're afraid of his base, right? President Trump has done a remarkable job in taking over a political party with both his popular populist message uh, and his sort of cult of personality. He is beloved by that MAGA uh, base within the Republican Party. And because none of these candidates can really consolidate that, Nikki Haley has uh, seen a recent boost. I think, you know, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina uh, certainly tried to speak more than he did in that first debate and did a better job in that in that regard. But for a lot of them, I think they are trying to reconcile how do we win over voters who have such an affinity for this president, this former president, while at the same time trying to sort of execute and prosecute this case against him. It's something that I think there's just a lack of basic courage other than really Chris Christie uh, on that on that platform stage. Yeah. Scott, who do you think had the best chance of winning over voters? And were they able to do any of that last night? Or, or what were your top line reactions? Well, you know, Philip describes Trump as the top dog, which he certainly is. And I saw those seven candidates last night as the dogs chasing the car. You know, and the car is winning. The car is Trump. He's so far ahead. And I don't think anything happened last night to upset that balance or give any of the candidates a big boost. Nikki Haley, again, had a strong performance. DeSantis uh, as well did better. But nothing to really disrupt the fundamental dynamic, which is that, you know, Trump is just so far away. You know, I think it's uh, far ahead, rather. I, I think it's ironic that the debate was held at the Reagan Library last night. You know, Ronald Reagan, when he was president and running for president. He had what he called the 11th commandment, thou shalt not attack fellow Republicans. And last night, that commandment was broken repeatedly. I mean, they, you really got the sense that these folks don't like each other very much. And especially, I think they kind of jumped all over Vivek Ramaswamy, who, uh, you know, in the last, the first debate a few weeks ago, uh, really was very disrespectful of the others. Uh, and so, you know, Nikki Haley in particular, but others went after him as well. But I don't see anything that really changed the fundamental dynamic uh, of the race. And I think as long as the field is as big as it is, is, this benefits no one but Donald Trump because they're going to carve up the the, the voters uh, who don't want to vote for Trump, and you know he's going to be far ahead. You mentioned that uh, there were references to Reagan that it was at the Reagan Presidential Library at the very beginning. They played a cut about his views on amnesty for people who came into this country unauthorized, and uh, you know you mentioned Vivek as well. So let's play a cut of him describing what he would do at the southern border if he were president. Militarize the southern border, stop funding sanctuary cities, and end foreign aid to Mexico and Central America to end the incentives to come across. But I do go a step further. You're right about that, Ilya. I favor ending birthright citizenship for the kids of illegal immigrants in this country. Now, the left will howl about the Constitution and the 14th Amendment. The difference between me and them is I've actually read the 14th Amendment. Again, that's candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. You know, Philip Bailey also wanted to get your reactions to that in terms of you're hearing this very extreme view of how to handle um, people coming into the country illegally uh, right after or in the same context of uh, having this debate with a president who had talked about amnesty. 
Right. I mean, I think the reason why you saw Vivek Ramaswamy uh, so sort of take off is because he is basically running uh, the campaign. I think he understands uh, the Republican base a little bit better than his more experienced rivals. He understands what the Republican base is today. Right. Not what it was in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was president or first elected president. Not what it was when George H.W. Bush was president or even when John McCain was running for president. Ramaswamy is basically trying to be Trump 2.0. I've had a chance to speak with him on a number of occasions and he's trying to out Trump Trump. And as far fetched as his ideas might sound, what was Donald Trump's debut when he came down that escalator in 2015? It was Mexico's not sending its best people. I'm going to build the border wall. So as far fetched as these ideas are. Ramaswamy understands that there is a populist sort of, I would say nativist almost, uh, bent to the Republican base when it comes to these issues. We are long away from the Gang of Eight and the political reforms that Republicans, right, even like business Republicans, Chamber of Commerce Republicans, believed in immigration reform. Ramaswamy's position basically is, I'm going to wage war on Mexico. He would argue waging war on the Mexican cartels. And even though a lot of these ideas may not ever see the light of day in you know, Congress, the point is that Ramaswamy, I think, understands the fervor of the Republican base. Whatever its motivations might be, he understands that, I think, better than his more experienced counterparts. Well, you certainly heard the other candidates, Scott, showing their animosity, sharing their animosity for Vivek Ramaswamy. Is it because he clearly is a viable threat? Well, he certainly did well in the first debate a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I think it was interesting to see Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina in particular, seems to have real disdain for him. (laughs) One of the funnier lines last night was when she uh, said, you know, every time I listen to you, I feel dumber, Uh, you know, talking about his his appearances on TikTok and his relationships with China. Uh, And so I think, you know, he's the only one up there last night who has never run for office, has never been in office, I believe. And I think, you know, if you've been in the arena, so to speak, if you've had to make hard decisions, uh, you sort of can resent somebody who has never been in that situation. It's easy to say things that are very popular. Uh, but I think because he comes across as sort of arrogant, a bit of a know-it-all, and somewhat disdainful of, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, politicians, um, you know, he's able to get away with and, you know, it does appeal to, to the base of, uh, of the Republican Party, as Philip said. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Nikki Haley, because she did get a boost in the polls after the first debate. And I think, Philip, that you've written that she is trying to strike a more traditional tone. What do you think of her performance last night? I think if there's anyone who is going to uh, hold the mantle of Ronald Reagan as former South Carolina governor and former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, she's very nimble on her feet when it comes to these debates, so she can mix it up with Ramaswamy and and Chris Christie and the rest. Uh, She also, I think, has over the past few weeks uh, been making an argument that, look, I'm the person, according to surveys, who is beating Joe Biden. I can beat Joe Biden. She's able to talk about uh, foreign policy in an intelligent way. She's able to talk about domestic politics in a way that appeals to conservatives, but I think still sounds sensible to moderate voters, independent voters, particularly particularly in the suburbs. That's where Republicans over these past few elections have struggled. And I think uh, former Governor Haley is certainly someone who appeals to that base of, of voters. And the reason you see her taking off, I think, is not just because she's the only woman in the race, right? But I think she also has this ability it's quite remarkable to watch it in real time of it being able to articulate herself while still appealing to this sort of smart, you know, uh, smart aleck angle that a lot of Republican voters like. But at the same time, she's intelligent, and knows what she's talking about. That moment, 
you know, where she made that comment to Vivek Ramaswamy. That's going to be all over TikTok <laughs> and other social <laughs> media platforms for weeks. It's going to be used in a non-political circumstance. And that's really important. We have to remember what age we're in politically. Most Americans still have not tuned into this race, mm -hmm. but they do see these memes. They do see these little moments. And I think Haley is going to be someone that people are going to look at and say, huh, I'm very interested in her. She doesn't sound insane. <laughs> she doesn't sound crazy, but she still sounds like a conservative in the way that Ronald Reagan, if Ronald Reagan were alive today, running in 2023, I think he would sound more like Nikki Haley than probably anyone else on that stage. Hmm. Well, she certainly did take a hard line against TikTok. And essentially against China, also Mexico. Let's hear a little bit about what she was trying to say about both those countries. Mexico's not being a good partner if we lost 75,000 Americans last year. Mexico's not being a good partner if they're letting the cartels get away with what they're getting away with. What we will do is we will make sure that we send in our special operations and we will take out the cartels, we'll take out their operations, we'll take out anything that's doing it. But we're going to go after China because China is the one sending the fentanyl in the first place. And we will end all normal trade relations until China stops sending fentanyl. Hmm. Well, I want to hear from listeners in terms of their opinion of the candidates who were on the stage last night, or if they watched the debate and, and what they thought. Who among these candidates would you like to see, if you would like to see one, as an alternative to Donald Trump? Who would you like to see the GOP rally around? You can email your thoughts to forum at kqed.org. You can post them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. We're recapping the Republican primary debate that was held last night at the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, <laughs> with Scott Schaefer, senior editor for our California Politics and Government Desk, and Philip M. Bailey, national political correspondent for USA Today. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Republican primary debate held last night at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley. And here's Chris Christie trying to go after Donald Trump for being a no-show. 
And Donald Trump he hides behind the walls of his golf clubs and won't show up here to answer questions like all the rest of us are up here to answer. He put $7 trillion on the debt. He should be in this room to answer those questions for the people you talk about who are Can suffering. We are talking with Philip Bailey, national political correspondent at USA Today, and Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, also co-host of Political Breakdown. And we're talking with you, our listeners, joining us with your reactions to the debate, if you saw it, your thoughts about who among the candidates you'd like to see the GOP rally around as an alternative to Donald Trump, if you would like to see an alternative to Donald Trump. Also curious to get your thoughts about Trump being able to skip these debates essentially with few or no consequences, arguably. You can email forum at kqed.org, call us at 866-733-6786, or post on our social channels at KQED Forum. This listener writes, We started watching a bit late and had to stop before it concluded. I consider myself a political geek, but the lack of substance was atrocious, and all the interrupting was like a teenage brawl. I thought the questions were good, but they should require they be answered. It's like the moderators enable rude behavior rather than facilitate or demand independent, concrete answers. I kept wondering where the hope is for a quality candidate. It's a rather sad look at what the Republican Party has to offer. I hope their young voters keep pushing for substance. There was a moment... A couple of moments, actually, Scott, where I almost felt like California or the fact that this debate was in California was showing up in the debate. And that was mainly in the questions that were asked by Univision's Ilia Calderon, um, you know, asked questions about Latino voters' concerns about mass shootings and asked questions about how Mike Pence, for example, would address anti-LGBTQ violence that's on the rise. Also dropping stats about fentanyl, mostly coming from U.S. citizens and 90% seized at official ports of entry. Those were questions that I don't know that I've heard really being put to Republican candidates. Yeah, it was sort of stunning to hear those questions. It was almost like a completely different debate that she was hoping for. I mean, yeah, those were questions of great interest to a lot of people uh, here in California and across the country. The fate of the DACA, the Dreamers, you know, and their uh, citizenship status, the limbo that they've been in for so long. And unfortunately, uh, you know, to the listeners' comments that you read a moment ago, unfortunately, the candidates in almost every instance uh, pivoted away from answering the questions that she posed uh, and went on or gave like lip service and then moved on to something they'd rather talk about. And there was no, you know, accountability. I mean, occasionally one of the moderators would come back and say, well, you know, again, here's the question. Will you please answer it? But, you know, that is a flaw in these kinds of formats that, um, you know, when you have a lot of people, it's hard to control uh, the conversation sometimes. And you can't, it's kind of up to the, the viewer, the listener, the voter to decide whether or not people answer. And uh, oftentimes they just don't. And it's, you know, it's very unsatisfying and frustrating. There was a question, Philip Bailey, that Ilya asked uh, to Florida Governor DeSantis about whether or not, you know, he would heal the wounds of his comment about slavery and and it being, quote, in a way beneficial and and directly saying that he hurt descendants of slaves with comments like that. Uh, what did you think of that moment? And also sort of Tim Scott coming in and using it as a moment for him. Well, look, I think Governor DeSantis is, <clears throat> his promotion in this primary has been, I'm the cultural warrior. When you look at the things that his campaign points to during his tenure as governor of Florida, it's a lot of these cultural fights against diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, 
against critical race theory, sort of taking, you know, and, and by the way, he's facing a lawsuit. I believe he's being defeated in a lawsuit about black uh, voter enfranchisement in Florida as well. So these comments have always sort of leaned into um, um, the issue of race in this country. And what's been remarkable is that Tim Scott sees that as an opportunity to, you know, to outline his vision of race in America, saying that African-Americans aren't victims of racism in this country. We are survivors uh, of racism in this country. And it gives him an opportunity, Scott being, uh, to outline uh, what's his favorite thing to do is just talk about his biography and talk about how, you know, he doesn't believe America is a racist country. It's a country that has tried its best uh, to face uh, that original sin. That moment to me, though, underscores, I think, why these Republican debates are so difficult for these candidates to sort of get out of the shadow of, of Donald Trump. There are many substantive issues, abortion, Ukraine, right, uh, race, where there are conservative viewpoints that differ slightly. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really get into that because, again, the elephant not in the room is Donald Trump, right? He's the candidate that they are all. And what's interesting to me is, is that rather than attacking Trump, these candidates have not sort of unified in, in demanding that the political party, that the RNC, hold Trump accountable. That would be the first line you would think in a, in a presidential primary to, to demand, you know, to have some equity in these in these debates. But that was certainly a moment for for Tim Scott. Uh, I think many people are aware that you know Governor DeSantis is not well beloved and wouldn't be well beloved with African-American voters in a general election. But it shows you there are wedges, there are differences in the Republican Party uh, that have emerged that are worth talking about on a number of issues from race to foreign policy to abortion. Well, let's hear a little bit of Scott's comments regarding slavery. America has suffered because of slavery, but we've overcome that. We are the greatest nation on earth because we faced our demons in the mirror and made a decision. So often we think that all the issues, you talked about crime and education and healthcare, we always think that those issues go back to slavery. Here's the challenge though, black families survive slavery. Again, those comments that tended to do well with the audience with regards to the fact that America has sort of moved on, addressed, and been able to confront its demons around its history of slavery. But as you mentioned, Philip Bailey, there was another moment when you saw some differences in the candidates, and that was on their positions on Ukraine and DeSantis being kind of weak when it came to support for Ukraine. I want to ask you, Scott, what stood out to you in terms of that moment of difference that you heard, say, between DeSantis and Ramaswamy versus, say, Nikki Haley or Mike Pence? Yeah, I think that uh, Nikki Haley, uh, Christie, Senator Scott clearly spoke out, really, I think, espousing sort of the Ronald Reagan wing of the Republican Party uh, support for Ukraine. Christie in particular, I think, was very articulate in expressing what the stakes are in stopping Putin. Um, Whereas, you know, Ramaswamy kind of pivoted and said, well, you know, just because Putin's evil doesn't mean Ukraine is great. Uh, And, you know, there is certainly room in the Republican Party right now for that sentiment. But I do think that, uh, you know, there is going to be some fatigue uh, for supporting Ukraine among voters. Uh, But I think clearly, uh, you know, Haley, Christie, Scott in particular made a good case for continuing that support and, and why, you know, why it's so important. Well, Noelle on Discord writes, why can't Republicans break the grip of the cult of personality of Trump that is taking over their party 
and in the presidential campaign in general? Why are we given the option of two old guys on each ticket? I really think many voters feel left out of changing who the candidates are going to be in both parties. Hmm, Your reaction to that, Philip Bailey? Well, look, one thing that the polling uh, has shown, and USA Today and Suffolk University have done and asked these very questions in our polling as well, but as have other news organizations, the one thing Americans agree on is they do not want to see a Biden-Trump rematch, but that more and more looks like what we're going to get as both parties sort of ignore that that point of view. To go to the the listener's question, though, of why it's so difficult uh, for Republicans to break this fever uh, known as Donald Trump, I think it's because, look, this is what Republican voters now want, right? I mean, like at a certain point, political parties uh, have to sort of accept that. There hasn't been anyone, there hasn't been a Mike Pence, a Mitt Romney, a Mitch McConnell or anyone else who has carved out a significant portion of the Republican Party, right, that can take on President Trump after the 2022 midterms, for example. Right after there were you know, not the big red wave that Republicans had hoped for, more of a red uh, po- a puddle or pond. Right after 2022, you saw in these state political parties across the country, like in Michigan and Colorado, more middle of the road, still conservative, but more traditional Republicans being kicked out or pushed out of those parties and more MAGA oriented, Trump oriented candidates uh, taking over uh, those political parties. We saw many of those people running for secretary of state and for governor, et cetera, who were who were affiliated with Donald Trump. And even though they lost, they did get the political victory of taking over those state political parties. So this is Donald Trump's party now. Right. Those individuals have not converted to become Democrats. This is the Republican Party. Ronald Reagan is not coming back through that door. Neither is John McCain, neither is Mitt Romney. So the question is uh, for Republicans now, I think for this final debate coming up in Miami, is will they all get on the same page and coordinate and and from the same chorus of attacking uh, Donald Trump? But the real question is, will it even matter? And I think more and more we have to all wait on the actual votes. Right. Let's all remember that polls, as DeSantis pointed out, polls are not votes. But at the same time, it looks more and more like we are going to have a Biden versus Trump rematch. And that's how both Biden and Trump are acting. Right. The Biden campaign put out ads during the Republican uh, debate. They uh, dispatched uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom, who basically called this the JV team debating here. And the Biden people are focusing on Donald Trump. Donald Trump's going around and having, you know, dual sort of uh, events and appearances along with President Biden in the same spaces like in Michigan uh, around the UAW strike. So we seem to already be in general election mode. It just seems like these seven candidates in the RNC don't know it. We're talking with Philip Bailey of USA Today and Scott Schaefer of KQED. And I want to bring into the conversation now Lonnie Chen, GOP policy advisor, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, former candidate for California State Controller, and former policy director for Mitt Romney. Lonnie, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be with you. Thank you. And some interesting comments from Philip Bailey that I would I would love to get your reaction to as well with regard to whether or not you feel like the candidates will get on the same page and try to attack Trump and whether or not it will really matter. But I guess first and foremost, did you see or hear anything last night that you think changed the dynamics of the of the political landscape, the election landscape, the primary landscape for these Republican candidates? Or is Trump going to be the nominee? Uh, I don't think the dynamic changed that fundamentally last night. I think Donald Trump still is the 
person who is in the best position to capture the nomination. I think the the operative question is and has always been who will be the primary alternative to him. And really what this process of the debates in this primary is now is a winnowing down until we get to those one or two people, preferably for those of us who are looking for an alternative to Trump, the one a person who will be able to go one on one. And so this process is really about figuring out who's best suited to be in that position, to be one-on-one with Donald Trump as we get into people actually voting, which is the January, February timeframe. And, you know, as far as last night goes, I think Nikki Haley was able to acquit herself favorably in terms of continuing the positive trend from her first debate. We saw Tim Scott kind of come back into the into the narrative, into the frame. And, you know, I thought uh, Ron DeSantis held relatively steady. So it, I, I don't think a whole lot changed in terms of the the race and where it stands today. But in terms of progress toward the ultimate goal of, of narrowing the field, uh, I do think that last night's debate was a step in that direction. Well, here's the thing that I wanted to ask you, which is essentially, we were talking about some of the policy positions that you were hearing from the candidates on the stage last night. What is the impact, do you think, of not having the front runner? have to debate, answer those kinds of questions, put forward a policy position so that we could get a better sense of how this person would govern. Because what we've heard some so far from people who have analyzed his previous administration and have watched the dynamics since the previous administration, uh, that he is really about essentially retribution and and self-interest, right? And self-enrichment. So so talk about what gets lost without having him there. Well, it's important to have this policy conversation now. That having been said, I I don't know that that has ever been or will ever be uh, a a hallmark of a Trump candidacy, the, the sort of policy positioning. That having been said, you raise a good point. I mean, there are a lot of policy proposals that uh, affiliated groups, groups that are affiliated with the Trump campaign, not Trump campaign itself, have put out a lot of policy. And so having that conversation is a very useful and important factor, particularly when there are some distinctions between Republican candidates on key issues. So take Ukraine as an example. United States support for what's happening in Ukraine. There is a division within the Republican Party. And on one side of that sit Uh, Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, and likely Ron DeSantis. And on the other sit, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, and Mike Pence. So that is a very real division over which there should be discussion and debate. Questions around uh, fiscal policy going forward and the additions that the Trump administration made to the national debt and what Republican candidates would do to address the debt and deficit picture in the United States. There is, again, a differing view between Trump, who famously, uh, you know, thought that debt was king uh, in his personal and professional life, contrasting that, of course, with the more traditional Republican view articulated by Nikki Haley and others that Republicans have to be fiscal hawks. So there is real contrast. It's not like we're talking about degrees of separation. We're talking about pretty bright line distinctions between the candidates. And traditionally, this would be the period of time when we would be vetting those differences. Right. And then what does it say to you, Lonnie Chen, that the leading nominee for the GOP can bail on the debate, can bail on the initial debate and have his lead widen, essentially suffer no consequences from potential voters? Well, I I think there's two elements here. One is it speaks to the reality of the race, which is that 
here you have a likely nominee of the Republican Party again, who was president, who is universally known, and about whom opinions are relatively well baked. And so the the empirical reality for Donald Trump is that he doesn't feel the need to, and probably in the wisdom of political advice, I'd argue it doesn't make sense for him to mix it up with the other candidates. But you have to balance that against what democratic norms generally call for, which is candidates to subject themselves to questioning and to a better understanding of where they are. And I think candidates at all levels, whether the presidential level or running for anything else, any candidates that refuse to subject themselves to this kind of scrutiny, to these kinds of debates, don't uh, deserve to hold office. I think that's just the reality of it. So um, there are are two very different strains here. One is what he should be doing politically, and the other is what he should be doing as a candidate for public office and indeed the highest office in the land. And a third strain, which is what does that mean for our democracy, right, that uh, we are not hearing from this particular candidate, especially after four indictments, um, you know, for trying to steal an election and sensitive classified documents. And, you know, as Philip Bailey brought up earlier, suggesting uh, that retiring chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, should be executed, advocating for the government shutdown, right? I mean, it, it can't be good for our democracy, Lonnie. Well, I, I certainly the lack of accountability, the the ability to sort of run your own campaign, regardless of uh, consequences of policy positions you might take or statements you might make. I mean, these, these, these are things that are troubling. But at the end of the day, you know, it says something that the Republican, the other Republican candidates waited until last night to really call him out for this. Uh, it is in part the job of people who are in this campaign against him to consistently point out the ways in which he's falling short and shame on them for not doing it. I understand why they don't do it, because the political motivation is very strong in the other direction to sort of say, well, don't attack him, do what you can to retain the support of those who support him. But that fundamentally, uh, I think, misapprehends the role of these candidates. If they're truly serious about governing, they have to make the case for why it is that it's a problem uh, that Donald Trump is not on that stage. So I, I, I think there's all sorts of of reasons why you can say candidates do or don't criticize other candidates. But on this measure and on this score, I think it's fairly obvious uh, where the strong points are and where the the, uh, the leverages, uh, so to speak. And I think it's it's with those candidates who can say, we, we have someone here who's the front runner of the party who refuses to come and subject himself to questions from the media and from voters. Well, Karen writes, I think Chris Christie is the one to support. He challenges Trump directly. He has more moral courage than anyone else on that stage. Another listener tweets, this collection of Republicans embarrassed themselves last night. If this is the best the GOP can do, their party is in deep trouble. We're talking with Lonnie Chen, Philip Bailey, and Scott Schaefer about their Republican primary debate last night in Simi Valley. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Republican primary debate last night that was held in California at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, and also about what it reveals about the direction of the Republican Party with Lonnie Chen, GOP policy advisor, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, Philip Bailey, national political correspondent for USA Today, Scott Schaefer, co-host of Political Breakdown, senior editor for KQED's Politics and Government Desk. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Let me go to Joy in Louisville, Kentucky. Hi, Joy. Join Hi. Though polling behind former President Donald Trump, Governor DeSantis was planted in the middle of the stage last night, indicating that he is indeed the front runner over the other candidates who participated in last night's debate. Do you see Governor DeSantis becoming more aggressive against Trump or needing to take more radical positions in Florida in order to bolster his position nationally? Hmm. Let me go to you on that, Lonnie. Well, if his goal is to be the person who is eventually there to take Trump on directly, I do think those contrasts have to get sharper. I do think that he has to, to take a position uh, of, uh, of of direct confrontation in some cases against Trump. And, and he did a, a little bit of that last night when he questioned why Trump wasn't there. But he's going to have to go after him, I think, a little bit harder on, on some more substantive contrast, because at the end of the day, you don't you don't take out the king unless you... Uh, unless you really aim to do so, unless you do so with some intentionality. And so my view is, if I were counseling him and his team, which which I'm not, but were I to be counseling him and his team, I would say, uh, you absolutely need to be very sharp and very distinct in the way that you take on Donald Trump. Well, let me go to caller Jonathan in San Francisco next. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for waiting. You're on. Of course. Um, yeah, so... I just want to make sure I say this before I say anything else. I would never vote for Donald Trump. But after hearing the candidates last night speaking, um, he really is still the best candidate out of the rest of them. And they're all terrible. Um, I think that this will probably just help them implode. Uh, Donald Trump is a people pleaser, and that's why everyone loves him. And the problem is people he's trying to please are the people that were on that stage and their constituents. That is dangerous for the whole nation. I don't think either of them deserve it. And the faster they go away, the better for me. And that's all I have to say. Well, Jonathan, thanks for sharing your thoughts. There's a couple of listener comments along those lines. The listener writes, The Republican frontrunner is an avowed enemy of America's constitutional system, and his own public statements leave little doubt that he will end our experiment in democracy if given the chance. The fact that none of this came up last night means that the party is still hostage to a demagogue who grows stronger with each display of this kind. Given the stakes here, drawing distinctions between the candidates on stage last night is basically meaningless. And another listener writes, Trump won't answer questions about policy anyways, whether he is there or not. He ran in 2016 without a platform. He will be bombastic, interrupt, and spew lies. Let's stop pretending he will do otherwise. I think the Question, though, uh, from these comments, which I'm not saying are necessarily wrong, is, but then why are we allowing it, right, as a nation? Why are we allowing it, Scott Schaefer? 
we're a very divided country, Mina, and uh, you know that is reflected in the polls, um, which I should you know caution are not that meaningful right now, this far away, especially maybe more so in the Republican primary. But in a presidential matchup in November of 2024, I think we have a long way to go before we know really what that looks like. Um, But, you know, we're in a country where people get their information from completely different sources of news. If you watch Fox and or if you watch or listen to NPR or PBS, you're getting or MSNBC, you're getting completely different set of I I, I put the word facts in quotes because a lot of times it it is disinformation. Um, And you have people if that's the only source of news that they use. They believe, you know, what they're hearing, whether it's true or not, and 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 that has formed opinions about, you know, Biden and about his ability to lead the country and his own mental capacity, as well as uh, what happened on January sixth, the indictments, and whether they're out to get Trump or is he really, you know, did he try to lead an insurrection? I mean, we have we have this huge divide in this country, and it's hard when you don't. Have you can't even agree on the basic facts about things like climate change or January six. It's very difficult to uh, come to consensus on things. Well, Kathleen writes, Tim Scott said black families survived slavery, but their families were split up. Kids were taken away. Black families didn't survive slavery, not in the way I understand families. He shouldn't be able to get away with saying that. Let me go to Paul in San Francisco. Hi, Paul. Thanks for waiting. You're on. Yes, thank you. I'm a lifelong uh, working class Democrat. And uh, I believe the Republicans have to just sit back and let the Democrats destroy themselves Hmm. when the Democrats go farther left. Uh, The Democratic Party is run from uh, the East Coast and the West Coast. The Republicans tap into all the people who feel like they're left out. So if the Democrats don't want Trump to win, they're going to have to go more toward the middle and stop alienating, especially the white working class, and stop alienating uh, the moderates and the independents. And that's what the Democrats are doing. Well, Paul, thanks for sharing your impressions. Philip, I don't know if you have a response or reaction to what Paul is saying. I, he may be tapping into something that at least California Republicans are hoping he's right about. Well, look, I think what's happening is, is that our country is not only, you know, Scott's right, we're getting our information in much different and various ways. Misinformation and disinformation has certainly become a, a problem for all of us. Uh, I think we all know the algorithms on our phones and what we view as shaping how we're being sort of manipulated by not just social media platforms, but by the very phones that we've coveted so much. But the country is changing demographically, right? We are truly becoming a multiracial democracy. The 2020 census showed that for the first time in U.S. history, the white population um, has decreased. Donald Trump knows this. Uh, and a lot of people on, on the right know this. And that is a primary motivation of concern and fear. Um, among a lot of voters. Uh, there's also the, the changing issue of artificial intelligence and technology and how it's undermined, as the caller says, you know, as a working class person, more working class people are being undermined by that by that technology. And neither party seems to uh, be able to come together and create and face these challenges like my parents or my grandparents' generation were able to face Nazism, were able to face the issue of civil rights, face, you know, the moon landing, for example, right? Do we still believe that we're a country that can, could land on the moon the way we act now? I don't know. But I think what's happening, though, is, you know, Donald Trump's debut was a basic challenge to those systems. He is, he is entire campaign since his debut into political life back in 2015 has been to wreck our political systems in a lot of ways. Um, and it's a direct challenge to that. I think what the overall answer I would give is, is that more and more when I encounter Americans across this country, whether in my home state of Louisville, Kentucky, 
or here in Washington, Atlanta, Georgia, or wherever else that I'm, I'm traveling here for USA Today, is that Americans are yearning for political answers that reflect their values, which are very mixed values. We have two political parties, right? But we have, you know, in other first world democracies, they have more than two options. There are multiple political parties that represent sometimes social conservatism, but maybe more liberal fiscal ideas and vice versa. But here we are faced with these two very stark and different parties. And I think more and more in years past, you would have people who would convert to another party. A lot of these moderate, middle-of-the-road Republicans who are still conservative, they're not going to become Democrat. Mitt Romney's not going to become a Democrat, right, and join up with, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of Congress, right? But in other political democracies, there would be a more conservative party that wouldn't be necessarily as extreme on some of these more uh, nationalist or, or domestic issues or international yeah. issues. There, even the Republican Party, I think, reflects that, where you have candidates who are advocating for a more hawkish, traditional, let's defend Ukraine, and a more dovish uh, wing of that party. We don't have a lot of political options, I think, and that is what is frustrating a lot of American voters. Yeah. Well, Lonnie Chen, one thing Trump is expected to show up to this weekend is California's Republican Party convention in Anaheim. He's the keynote there. And I just want to ask you about, you know, the talk, the the recommendations of policy committees for the state GOP of actually removing specific opposition to same-sex marriage and abortion language that was in the party platform to try to appeal to more moderate voters in the state, moderate voters who they believe are fiscally conservative and would support the fiscally conservative ideals of the Republican Party. Do you think they should do this? Do you think the state GOP should do this? Well, I sort of question the utility of party platforms, period. I mean, the reality is that every single candidate is going to have a set of beliefs that they're going to run on. And and perhaps there is some coherence around basic adherence to principles of, in the case of the Republican Party, individual responsibility, freedom, liberty, you know, very, very high, high level concepts. But the, the idea that a platform can represent the views of a party that uh, often is a diverse collection of people. The Democratic Party is the same way, by the way. If you think about the different people who are Democrats now, you can argue there's more convergence on the two sides, but nonetheless, there is diversity within the parties. The concept that you can have a platform that represents all of them doesn't make sense to me. So were it up to me, I'd just get rid of the platform, period. Okay, I, I but how would, you bring more platform. Calif- how would you bring more Californians into the Republican Party? Only 24% are registered as Republicans here, as opposed to 47% Democrat. Well, I think there's there's two things. One is, and, and this was in part how I ran my campaign, which was a focus on uh, issues where I really believe that we can make things better, whether it's on fiscal responsibility, on accountability, around transparency for where our money goes, issues that I think people fundamentally care about uh, when they're going to the voting booth. And, and I get that people are going to vote on different things, but I really think that at the end of the day, you've got to focus on the kitchen table uh, issues that really animate people on a day-to-day basis. That's number one. And number two is giving the freedom and flexibility for candidates to have different points of views on these issues. Because at the end of the day, a Republican running from Orange County is going to be very different than a Republican running from Bakersfield. And they're going to have different points of view. And to try and cohere those and put those people into one platform at the end of the day is probably not going to be all that useful. So I'm uh, I, I, that's just my view is that you've got to give candidates the flexibility and the freedom to run on. Uh, their views and and not have an orthodoxy around it. 
Well, Michael writes, there's only one poll that means anything, the one in November 2024. Once Americans got a good taste of Trump, they rejected him overwhelmingly in 2020. This followed upon his loss of the popular vote of 2016 by around 3 million votes. His rallies are well attended by a very vocal, minuscule segment of the electorate. All this adds up to Trump being a loser again. Lonnie, do you think Michael's right? Uh, I would be very careful about predicting the demise of Donald Trump. I mean, if you look at the polling out there, uh, where things stand today, and, and Scott Schaefer raises a good point, which is, you know, polls that are out today, more than a year out from the election, aren't particularly worth the paper they're printed on. But they but they do reflect general sentiment. And there is a view out there that Joe Biden and his performance on the economy have not been good. And that is driving a lot of disaffect for him amongst independent voters and constituencies in particular that he relied on to win the 2020 election. If those trends hold, uh, Donald Trump could be reelected. He very well could be reelected. And the reality is because of the way the Electoral College is designed, if Joe Biden does not go into the last 60 days of the campaign up, let's say, three or four points, he's in trouble because he very well could lose the election. And, and I uh, this idea that, well, Donald Trump, you know, he's never going to win again. That, that that's simply untrue. If you look at the numbers now, there is a very real possibility uh, that Trump will be incredibly competitive, particularly if he's running against Joe Biden. That matchup is potentially quite favorable for the former president. GOP policy advisor and fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lonnie Chen. Also, Philip Bailey is with us from USA Today and KQED's own Scott mm-hmm. Schaefer. This happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Lonnie, you said that you have seen a world where another Democrat steps into the field, and you've said that Governor Newsom is set to go. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I think he is uh, somebody who clearly has evinced an interest in running for president or for, for, I mean, I suppose the only other higher office in this case would be president for him. Uh, he set up an organization. He's got a set of messages. He's clearly interested in drawing contrasts with Republicans across the country. Witness this debate. He and Ron DeSantis will have on Fox News in Georgia in a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, he's somebody who is clearly positioning himself and he's ready to go for that next race, whatever it might be when he's turned out of office in 2026. So he's someone to keep an eye on. I, I think I talked to a lot of Republicans who, notwithstanding what have been quite progressive policy positions, they see him as somebody who is potentially a quite formidable as a Democratic candidate, much more formidable, by the way, than the vice president, Kamala Harris. So so is he someone to uh, to continue to watch out for? Well, Scott, he was certainly the surrogate, essentially, for Joe Biden after this debate. What are your reactions to how Newsom handled that and your thoughts on what Lonnie's saying? About you, you know, I watched the analysis or the conversation, if you want to call it that, afterwards with Sean Hannity. And, you know, Newsom loves going on Fox and Hannity loves having him on. It's good good for the ratings, I guess, which is why they've agreed to do that Fox debate at the end of November. But I have to say it was... <laughs> Pardon me, but it, it seemed like toxic masculinity between those two guys, Hannity and Newsom, talking over each other, talking past each other, trying to, you know, flexing their <laughs> muscles in one way or another. Uh, but to, to Lonnie's point, he, you know, he's a very talented politician and he's not going to do this. But if he were to jump into the Democratic primary and give Democrats a real choice, that would be big problem for Joe Biden. I mean, there are other people thinking of doing that. Uh, you know, as we said at the beginning, 
voters don't want another rematch between Trump and Biden. And if there is a credible alternative or if there were uh, someone other than you know, Robert Kennedy Jr., for example, who is running, um, you know, I think it would be a real disaster for Biden and possibly for the party, because once you have a divided electorate within a party, it's very difficult to win in the general election. That's what, you know, happened to Jimmy Carter in 1980 with Ted Kennedy. So it's very difficult. Uh, but, you know, yes, clearly Newsom is uh, he's the horse in the starting gate and the gate hasn't opened um, and he's ready to go. Uh, but uh, when when that time will come for him, uh, probably 2028. Let me talk to next to the caller, Stephen in Sonoma, who's been waiting. Stephen, thanks for calling. What would you like to say? Hi, good morning. I came to the show late, so forgive me for that. Um, I'd just like to point out to your esteemed Republican colleagues, there is no Republican Party anymore. It's the Trump Party, and it's all your fault. You put this alleged criminal and treasonous character in office, and you're going to have to get rid of this rot before you have a viable Republican Party anymore. It's all on you, Republican mm-hmm. voters. Well, let it's me... It's your fault. Let me get Lonnie's reaction, because those are some strong words, Stephen, just in terms of that this is Trump's party now, and he blames the Republican electorate for putting us in this position. Well, it wasn't just the Republican electorate that elected him president of the United States. So the the notion that this is somehow entirely at the uh, at, at the feet of Republicans. And by the way, not all Republicans favor Trump. A lot of Republicans, myself included, expressed deep reservations and, and did not support Trump. So, uh, look, you can paint this all you want to as a as a broad stroke. But at the you know, in the final analysis, Donald Trump won a lot of voters, the support of a lot of voters who are not Republicans. By the way, a lot of Democrats, former Democrats in some cases who have joined the Republican Party because they adhere to his message. So, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's convenient and nice to make that allegation and that accusation, but it, it uh, the, the facts belie it, quite frankly. And Philip Bailey, the fact that you have a view from Kentucky, I'm just curious how you are seeing the next few months play out before we hit Iowa. Well, I think you know an undercurrent of this race is going to be the age question for both camp campaigns and for both political parties. You know, President Joe Biden is north of 80 years old. Uh, President. You know, former President Donald Trump is no spring chicken himself right behind him at the age like 77 or so. And that's why you have a conversation and people looking at these younger candidates like Gavin Newsom and on the right, uh, Glenn Youngkin of, of Virginia. I think over the next few weeks, the question is going to be, do Republicans and will there be a Republican who can stand up and to prosecute the case that, look, you may love Donald Trump. He might be in the lead now, but we don't know how general election voters are going to respond to a four-time indicted 91-count-plus president uh, who has done pretty much everything in his power Mm -hmm. to undermine basic tenets of our democracy. Such a time we are in. Philip Bailey, thank you, of USA Today. Scott Schaefer, thank you, KQED. Lonnie Chen, thank you, GOP Policy Advisor. Really appreciate having all of your insights and experiences to share with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.